The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, let's go ahead and start. Let's pray, if we might. Father, thank you for this time to, together to study tonight. We need your help. We ask, Lord, that you would please uh, focus our minds now on the Scripture and help us to learn about prayer. Uh, as the disciples said to you, teach us to pray. Lord, I pray that we would learn from you, that you would teach us your spirit of prayer and of your intercessory ministry, which you modeled for us while you were on earth by arrive, uh, arising early in the morning, a great while before dawn, and going to pray to your Heavenly Father. We pray, Lord, that we would learn this discipline of prayer, that we would learn the theology of prayer, uh, that we would understand it better. But more than anything, Lord, that we would come to rely on you and know you and trust in you. We pray for this, Lord, and be with me tonight and uh, help me not to teach error. Uh, help all of us, Lord, to take your word and put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking tonight about prayer, and I'm going to begin with an example from Scripture. If you would take your Bibles and open to Genesis 18. We're going to look at an example of a praying man, a man named Abraham. Abraham's a great example of a man of faith. In another place in Scripture, he was called the friend of God. Well, friendship with God implies uh, a relationship, doesn't it? It implies walking with God and knowing Him. And it involves prayer. It involves talking to God. There are many examples of Abraham praying in Scripture, talking to God, but perhaps one of the most famous is his intercession for the city of Sodom. Uh, so we're looking at Genesis 18, uh, beginning at verse 16. Now, he has already entertained these angels unawares, as one translation of the book of Hebrews says. He's got angels that come and he feeds them. And so uh, it says that we should offer hospitality to strangers because you never know, it might, be, it might end up being angels. And so we have that example in Genesis 18. Well, the angels are going up to leave and heading down towards Sodom, beginning at verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see, uh, to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. 
Then Abraham spoke up again, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, What if only forty are found there? He said, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Now, as you look at this account of Abraham interceding for Sodom, what do you notice? What can you learn from Abraham and from this experience, this uh, example of prayer? What can you learn about prayer from this? He's bold. He's bold. He was humble. Bold and yet humble. How do you see the boldness of Abraham? That's almost like a kind of a bartering in an in a ancient Near East bazaar, you know, the kind of dickering here. So we see the boldness in that he continues to ask and to intercede. How do you see, Chris, the humility? He comes before him and he says, um, let me speak before you. Um, he's, he's mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got a lot of statements in here. You know, I'm just dust and ashes. You know, you, you don't need to listen to me. Who am I uh, to speak to you? Um, anything else? Yes? He uses logic and reasoning. For example, for lack of five, yeah. destroy it? Or shall the, the God of the, the judge of the earth not do what's right? You know, that's a very, very interesting statement when you stop and think about it, isn't it? When I was at MIT, I took a class on theology, something you should never do at <laughs> MIT. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, MIT divides chemistry and chemical engineering into two different departments, two different buildings entirely. They're just two different majors. Um, But they put all the humanities in one building. That includes religion, art, literature, linguistics, uh, everything. I actually knew a guy, one of the the guys in my fraternity was uh, uh, majored in creative writing in 1969 at MIT. Now, that was in the 60s when odd things were happening on college campuses. Imagine a degree in creative writing from MIT and what kind of job you might or might not be able to get with that degree. But at any rate, um, in that class on on Christianity, on theology, on the Bible, um, the professor was not a Christian, I don't think. I think he was trying to destroy faith more than build it, uh, definitely. But one of the things he talked about um, was this, this interaction. And he brings up this statement, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It implies that God is under a standard, isn't he? That he's under a standard of righteousness. He needs to behave himself. You know, there's a, a thing called right, which is above God, and he's got to do right. That's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? I think that the judge of all the earth is right. Anything he does is right and righteous. But there's this sense, and and Abraham 
bases it on this intrinsic sense of righteousness. It doesn't seem right to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Anything else you can learn about prayer from this interaction? Well, in, in the same vein, he's basing his, his whole premise on the character of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not about, it, it's ultimately not about his ability to handle words or mm-hmm. persuade, but it's just grounded on who God is. All right, uh, read on. Uh, uh, chapter 19. Uh, beginning at verse 27. This is, the, this is the end result. Early the next morning, I'm in 1927 now, early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. So clearly in the text, we're supposed to remember this time of prayer. We're supposed to think back to Abraham's intercession. So he got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, And he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. Stop there. Now, have have you ever felt like that in your prayer life? I mean, have you ever asked for something and this is what you got? I mean, I can't imagine a more kind of opposite answer than the one he was expecting. I felt myself like my prayer life was dense clouds of smoke rising from the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah. I didn't get what I asked for. I got exactly the opposite. And, and so that's troubling to us. And prayer is that way, isn't it? Here's this humble man standing before God, praying for something, and it seems that he gets the exact opposite. But you've got to read on. You can't, you can't stop there. What's the next verse? In verse 29, So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Now, the intervening verses talks about the rescue of Lot and how hard those angels had to work to get him out of that city. He just didn't want to leave. And yet he was, Second Peter 2, a righteous man tormented in his righteous soul day after day by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. So he's a righteous man. According to these verses, there's a direct connection between Abraham's intercession and Lot's rescue. It's not a connection I would make, but it's a connection the text makes. God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot. Prayer is mysterious, isn't it? It's a mystery. He didn't get what he asked for, but he got what he was getting at, namely the deliverance of the righteous. And in the end, it seems that he was, I guess, too optimistic about how many righteous people there were. Now, I'm going to read something from E.M. Bounds. E.M. Bounds was a man of prayer who, it says practiced law for three years before he entered the ministry and served uh, in the Civil War as a chaplain. He used to rise at 4 a.m. and pray until 7 a.m. every day. 4 a.m., three hours of prayer every day. However, I think in this particular account, he's talking about Abraham, the man of prayer. Uh, He has an approach that I do not endorse. Now, I'm going to read it, and let's talk about it for a moment. This is E.M. Bounds. What a remarkable story is that of Abraham standing before God, repeating his intercessions for the wicked city of Sodom, the home of his nephew Lot, doomed by God's decision to destroy it. Sodom's fate was for a while stayed by Abraham's praying and was almost entirely relieved by the humility and insistence of the praying of this man who believed strongly in prayer and who knew how to pray. No other recourse was open to Abraham to save Sodom but prayer. Perhaps the failure to ultimately rescue Sodom from her doom of destruction was due to Abraham's optimistic view 
of the spiritual condition of the things in that city. It might have been possible, who knows, that if Abraham had entreated God once more and asked him to spare the city, if even one righteous man was found there for Lot's sake, he might have heeded Abraham's request. Now, what's, what's wrong with that view of prayer? Okay, so he's focused on saving, saving the city. It's man-centered. How is this a man-centered view of prayer? That's right. And, and here's the whole issue. I just don't think E.M. Bounds read the text closely enough. Because who began the prayer encounter? Who began it? Who initiated it? God did. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Well, what are you about to do? I'm about to destroy those cities. Shall I hide it from Abraham? No. Why? Because of who Abraham is, what kind of man he is, and how I've chosen him, and how he will direct his children after him, all those things that he says, because of his desire to include Abraham in his actions. See, that's the whole thing with prayer. It's not like Abraham is the center and God's trying to figure out what to do about Sodom and Gomorrah. He's saying, I want to include Abraham in what I'm about to do. I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to include him. Now, we must realize it's very clear that God hides from us many things he's about to do, and good thing, too. The fact of the matter is most of what God is about to do, he hides from us. But in this particular case, he chose not to hide it, but he included Abraham. Abraham began to intercede in this manner. Uh, when did it stop? Who ended the prayer encounter? God ended it as well. How do you know that God ended the prayer encounter? Yes. God said enough. That's it. Okay, we're stopping at 10. All right. <laughs> before he goes on. And also probably a sense of the holiness and the majesty of God was building up inside Abraham that he wouldn't have gone any further. I mean, it was like all he could do, I think, to get to 10. And when he had gotten there, he stopped. And so Abraham at least knew the next day when he looked out over the plain that there were not 10 righteous people in Sodom. God was vindicated, I think, at least in part through this intercession and this time of prayer that he has with Abraham. There's not 10 righteous people. God knew that before he sent the angels down. He knew exactly how many righteous people there were in that city. But the fact of the matter is, this view of prayer is all too common, isn't it? That God is coming to us trying to figure out what to do, and if only we had done this in prayer, then that wouldn't have happened. It's almost like abracadabra. You've got to get the right syllables in the right order, or else it's not going to work. That is, that is too mechanistic. It's too magic. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? That's what prayer is. Prayer is God involving us in His plans, in His purposes. Another very good example of this, and I'm not going to go through the verses, but just look them up sometime, you'll see, has to do with Moses' intercession for Israel when God threatens to destroy Israel at the time of the golden calf. You remember that. And Moses prevails upon God. He intercedes and prays for 40 days. And he is in prevailing prayer. Bob, there's a seat right here, if you, I think. It's clear. And God listens to Moses and does not destroy um, Israel. It says in the text that he relented and did not destroy Israel. The threat was that he was going to make of Moses a great nation. You remember that? 
And you say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with that. He had already made predictions through Jacob about each of the 12 patriarchs. Remember, each tribe, including Judah, had a prediction. The scepter would not depart from Judah until the, the ruler comes. So if he sweeps away all those 12 tribes and you end up with just Moses, you've got a problem fulfilling a prophecy about Judah, don't you? That wasn't going to happen. And yet God was testing Moses and wanted him to intercede for his people and pray. And then it says later in Numbers, when he's going back and think about that time, he says, it was not the Lord's will to destroy you. So what was the prayer for? Well, it's, shall I hide from Moses what I'm intending to do? He wants to include Moses in his work. He's not going to destroy Israel, but he wants Moses to pray for them, and so he does. And God, I believe, takes our prayers and involves them in his eternal plan in a very mysterious way. He wants us to pray. All right, so that's just the introduction. Now let's start looking at some of the text and some of the outline. Now we began talking about prayer last time, and you take your sheet here, and we've talked about about definitions of prayer. We've also been through why God does not not want us to pray, or why God, why does God want us to pray? It's not for the following reasons: because He needs our input or wisdom or advice, not because He's ignorant of our true needs, and not because He does nothing without prayer. As this kind of focus would give us a sense that God doesn't do anything unless we pray. I'm saying that God does many things that we never pray about, but yet He wants us to pray, and He wants us to pray more than we do. And there's a sense of involvement when we pray. He does want us, however, to develop and express trust and reliance on God. This is a big issue, isn't it? Big issue. You know, I, I was, I'm going through, I'm reading through the, the Bible right now. I'm in uh, Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, it says that God sent them manna from heaven to humble them. How does manna from heaven humble us? not what we want, okay? Get tired of the taste after 40 years, of course. 40 weeks. Only lasts for a day, and so therefore what? Have to go back the next day, humble with a basket. I, I'm, I'm saying if you're a, a provider for your family, it's like, hey, I really gathered it today, didn't I? I mean, it's really kind of tough to boast in the gathering of manna, you know? I can really bring it home, can I, hon? You know? It's very humbling. You know, there's not much to boast about. As a matter of fact, in all honesty, there's nothing to boast about when it comes to manna, bread from heaven. So God humbled them to test them, to teach them that man did not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's very humbling. Why did they need that lesson? Well, when they go in to the promised land and they are then, I think, one or a few steps removed from God's providence. Now they plow the fields and they plant the seeds and they weed them and they work their gardens and then they get a bumper crop. What are they going to be tempted to think at that point? We did it. Hey, look what I did. I, I sure can bring in the harvest, can I? And that's not so ridiculous because we did work this time. We did show effort. And he said, but but realize at the time that it is God who enables you to produce wealth. It's God who gives you all of these good things. You're still totally dependent on Him. We have a tendency to be independent. So it occurred to me that we as Christians ought to do the exact opposite thing that our founding fathers did on July 4, 1776, in which they declared what? Independence. We need to declare dependence all the time. We need to have a declaration of dependence. And prayer, I believe, is a declaration of dependence. All the time, God, we depend on you. We need you. In you, we live and move and have our being. We need your help. We need your wisdom. We need your provision. 
We're so independent. And so we can just go off on our own and do things for years without ever talking to God about it. And that is so false. And so prayer is a way of declaring dependence. Also, page two, to conform our wills to His and our character to His, we talked about. To teach us patience and to humble us, as I've mentioned here, to remind us of our total dependence and to exalt us and remind us of our special position as His children. Prayer is a mystery in this way. It both humbles us and exalts us. It humbles us in that we have to go ask for everything, but it exalts us in that He hears everything we say. He pays close attention, doesn't blow us off. The Lord will hear me when I call to Him, it says in the Psalms. And so He listens to everything we say, takes it very seriously. And so when the Lord rescued Lot, He remembered Abraham and rescued him. He thought about His prayer. There was a cause and effect there in some mysterious way. Also, to make us fruitful as we join Him in His work, to bring us joy, and to teach us to love one another by bearing each other's burdens, to intensify godly passions, to help us live up to our responsibilities and to bring Him glory. You could probably list another 11 or 15 reasons for prayer, but these are just some suggested things. This is why God wants us to pray. To pray. Now, is prayer effective? Does prayer really change things? Have you ever seen that bumper sticker, prayer changes things? Well, for a while I thought, no, God changes things. And I still believe that. Prayer itself doesn't change a thing. I can prove that. All you have to do is pray to Molech. Prayer doesn't do a thing, right? Because Molech's a non-God. Nobody even worships him anymore. He's a loser God. He's out, all right? Chemosh, <laughs> out. Nobody worships him. He lost his constituency. He's gone, okay? So prayer itself doesn't change anything, but God changes things. But it's too quick, I think, to say prayer doesn't change things God does for some reason God has ordained that it is through prayer that so many things happen not through everything happens but many things happen and therefore prayer is effective prayer accomplishes things things happen as a result of prayer there is in the Bible a cause and effect between prayer and answers mysterious I know but there it is Prayer changes the way that God acts in some mysterious way. The clear implication is if we do not pray, we do not receive. And if we do pray, we will. For example, James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask God, he said. That's very important, isn't it? There are some things that you don't have if you don't ask God. He won't give them to you. They're held back from you. Matthew 7.7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Uh, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. I already mentioned this one. Key interchanges in the Bible. Prayer affects God's actions. In Exodus 32, 9 through 14. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone. That's an interesting statement. So that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Then, I, In other words, don't pray to me. What is he doing? He's enticing him to pray, isn't he? Drawing him in. He wants him to pray. And I will make you into a great nation. I've already shown you from the prophecies spoken through Jacob that he can't do this. You know, because Jacob had made predictions concerning each of the 12 tribes. You remember that. And so for him to sweep away all those 12 heads could not be possible because Judah is going to have the scepter. Christ is going to be descended from Judah. All right. But verse 11, Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought against Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? See, he's concerned there about God's reputation, isn't he? Concerned about his name in the earth. Is God concerned about that? Oh, we've said it again and again. God is very concerned about his reputation. 
Why? For his own sake? No, for yours. Because it's by calling on the name of the Lord that you're saved. And so he wants his name to be great and mighty all over the earth so that people will call on that name and be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Moses is very zealous for the reputation of God. He said, do you realize how the Egyptians are going to see you? You just wiped out their country with a plague, wiped out their army in the Red Sea, and now you bring us out here and wipe us out too. Is this who you are? I mean, they will, they will not think properly of you. Your reputation's at stake, God. And so he, he says, turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Now, what technique is Moses using here in prayer? I already highlighted one. That's right. First of all, he talks about God's reputation and his honor and his glory. And then secondly, he takes uh, God's promises and shows it to him. The Puritan said, show God his writing. He's fond of his signature. So that what that means is you take the scripture and the promises and you bring them back and say, Lord, you said this. Be faithful to your promise. It's so true. Or, or in Second Chronicles, this is a very interesting, uh, fascinating study. I can think of no king worse than Manasseh. This is, this is an evil man. This is the man who took one of the descendants of Judah, one of, one of, uh, one of uh, those that would ultimately lead to Christ, and sacrificed him uh, in the fire, burned him in the fire to a false god, one of his own children. It's unbelievable. Uh, he's a wicked, evil king. And it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Now, that's amazing, God hearing a prayer from a man like that. But clearly, in the Accounting Chronicles, he links Manasseh's restoration to his prayer. God heard him. He was moved by his entreaty and brought him back. This is the whole point of many, many narratives, psalms and commands. Too many to list here. God hears and is moved by prayer. Psalm 107, verse 6, and other verses say, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Psalm 107 is a fascinating psalm. Basically, it's a case study, one after the other. People wandering in a desert, and they cry out to the Lord, and he saves them. Or people sick with an with a illness, and he cries out to them, and he saves them. Or people in prison because they've committed a crime, and he cries out to them, and he saves them from their distress. Again and again, uh, the lesson is taught that uh, God hears prayer. Grudem says, if we really were convinced that prayer changes uh, the way God acts and that God does bring about remarkable changes in the world in response to prayer, as Scripture repeatedly teaches that He does, then we would pray much more than we do. Isn't that true? If we really believe that prayer changes things and that God acts through prayer, we'd pray more. If we pray little, it is probably because we do not really believe that prayer accomplishes much at all. I think that is true. Effective prayer is made possible by our mediator, Jesus Christ. Our sinfulness makes us naturally unwelcome in the presence of God. You should keep that in mind constantly. Abraham had a sense of that, didn't he? A sense of his unworthiness. He didn't deserve to be in God's presence. You should have that too. 
just as the tax collector beat his breast and wouldn't even lift up his eyes to uh, heaven, but said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so it is that, uh, that God hears uh, only through Christ, only through a mediator can we approach the throne of grace. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So Christ is our mediator. Uh, take a minute and look at, um, at uh, Romans chapter 5. We've seen this verse before, but it's a very vital verse. Romans chapter 5 in connection with prayer. Romans 5, verse 1 and 2. Can somebody read that for me, if you would? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay. We have been justified through faith. That means we are in a right relationship with God. Our sins are forgiven. He's declared us not guilty. Through faith in Christ, we have peace with God. We're in a right relationship with God um, through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our mediator. He is our justifier. It's on the basis of His righteousness that we have this right relationship with God. But what's the next thing it says in verse 2? Through whom, namely through Christ, we have gained what? What do we have? Access. A better translation than access would be introduction. Introduction would be a better one. And, and for, for we who are, are Americans and, and don't really have a sense of royalty, you need an introduction to the presence of a king or queen. You can't just come into their presence. You have to have an introduction in order to be heard in court. Somebody has to bring you and be your introducer. Jesus is our introduction. He is our access. And once that connection has been made, then we're free to come and go and to intercede and to communicate with the, with the sovereign king. <coughs> Jesus is our access. Hebrews says that he has opened for us a new and living way through the curtain by his body. He's our access, our way of getting in. Uh, we have no other way. God would not accept. I believe one of the major lessons of the old covenant is you're not welcome as you are. You're not, you're not welcome in the presence of God as you are. You must be atoned for. And so you can't come into the Holy of Holies. You can't come close to God. Jesus is our access. So we are welcome through Christ. And so when you pray, you should always say, not just say in Jesus' name, we'll get to that later, but, but understand how much you are there on the basis of Christ's righteousness. You have no standing any other way. All right, so that brings us a question. Does God hear the prayers of unbelievers? What's the answer? What do you think? Does he hear prayers of unbelievers? Say again. Well, I question concerning uh, not hearing prayers of any unbelievers, but I'm sure he hears the prayer of uh, when they call upon the name of the Lord. Yeah, but I would say that that is not the prayer of an unbeliever. Uh, he's already become saved before he utters the prayer. And so he's a believer before he speaks the words. It must be, or else the words are spoken in unbelief. And so the faith comes first, and then out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks the sinner's prayer and all the other things. So I don't think that even that would be an example of God hearing an unbeliever's prayer, but actually it's the very first fruits of belief when you cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, save me. Um, I think it really depends on what you mean by the word hear. 
What, what do we mean by the word here? Is God aware of their prayers and their content? Of course he is. Jesus comments on it. Remember when he uh, gives the Lord's Prayer? He said, don't be like the, like the pagans. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't keep on babbling like pagans. Well, here's the omniscient God who's going to hold us accountable for every careless word we've spoken. And he said, I've had to listen to pagan babbling for millennia. I mean, it's, it's just babbling. Uh, the Buddhists have these prayer wheels, you know, brrr, brrr, it's just endless repetition, rote prayers. There's nothing behind it. It's endless mantra-like babbling. So is, does God hear that? Yeah, he hears it, but he doesn't hear it, you know. He, he knows that it's happening because it's in his universe. He's omniscient after all. So in that sense, he hears it. He hears it because he's omniscient and fully aware of everything going on in the universe. But in another sense, he is under no covenantal obligation to answer their prayer. When, when David says, the Lord will hear me when I pray to him, when I call to him, he means something different, doesn't he, than the Lord will be aware of my words in his universe. It's something different. It's I'm his child. I'm speaking to him and he's going to hear what I have to say. It's going to make an impact on him, even if I don't get what I ask for. He's going to hear me. Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. That's very interesting, isn't it? Very interesting. What does that word afar mean? What does it mean that he knows the proud from afar? In a non-intimate way. In a non-intimate way. It doesn't mean a thing spatially because God is omnipresent. He's as close to the unbeliever as he is to you and me but he's relationally distant from them. It's like he can barely hear. I mean, he knows what they're saying, but there's no connection. There's no relationship. The proud he knows from afar. That's the way it is in your prayer life. If you feel like you're distant from God, it may be that God is making you feel that way because he's not pleased with something in your life. Even though he's omnipresent, he's there in one sense. He's relationally distant from you. There's a sense there of being far from him. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin is the issue there, isn't it? And so our prayers are very much affected by our sin. The illustration I can think of, it really is not a perfect illustration, but I just want to get some of it across. Like a parent in a crowded playground, when he hears someone else's child call out or cry, he's not moved to action. It's not his child. No covenantal obligation. I'm not talking about a child who hurts himself and then out of mercy you just want to help the person because they're a human being. I told you it's not a perfect analogy. But what I'm saying is that there's a covenantal obligation that God has to us to hear our prayers and to be moved. And he's under no obligation uh, in that way to hear the prayers of an unbeliever. Now, Josh's father, Bailey Smith, got into trouble when he said God doesn't hear the prayers of a Jew. I don't know if you remember that years ago. Um, boy, that was hot. Um, difficult. Um, but I think the point is that God only hears prayers of those rightly related to him through faith in Christ. Only through Christ, our mediator, are our prayers welcome. Uh, God's under no obligation to hear any other prayers. Does that mean God doesn't answer the prayers of uh, an unbeliever? Well, I don't think it's a pr an answer to the prayer. God may do something, you see. But it's not the same that what we're talking about here, namely that we cry out and trust in the Lord in faith because I would say it's not really prayer. They're not praying it in faith. 
Well, uh, it's really tough to know. It seems very much. And if you read the Chronicles account, Manasseh uh, walked with the Lord from then on. You, you really have to wonder if he was genuinely broken and humbled by the ring they got put in his nose. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, he was praying to Molech, I guess, when he sacrificed his son. But when he was in prison, if that's what you're talking no, about. He didn't pray. The Lord just... No, he did. He was moved by his entreaty. He did. But all I'm saying is I don't know the moment, let's say, of regeneration from Manasseh. I'm just saying he's languishing in an Assyrian prison in Bab- Babylon, and he comes to his senses, just like the prodigal son. He says, what am I doing here? And at that point, it could be that he remembers all of his biblical training and he repents and trusts, trusts in the Lord. So, anyway, that's a good point. All right, how did God hear the prayers of Old Testament saints? If it's only through Christ, our mediator, that we can come, then what about the Old Testament saints? Did God hear uh, the prayers of Old Testament saints? Well, clearly he did. We have the example of Abraham and Moses. Um, Old covenant sacrificial system was really no true access to God. It was merely a foreshadowing. It didn't effectively do anything. It was just a teaching tool in one sense. And yet, it was commanded, so they had to do it. And if they didn't do it, it was a sign of disobedience and rebellion. So they had to do it, uh, just like they had to follow the eating and the dietary regulations and all that. And to not do so would be, would be sin. The Old Testament saints were seen by the timeless God only in and through Christ's mediator. People are justified the same way in every era, aren't they? They're always justified the same way. How? By faith. It's just that the promises are different and better now. That's all. We have more full promises, better promises, more complete promises. Abraham had a smaller promise and he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith. And this point is made very, very clear. In Romans 3.25, God presented Christ, him as Christ, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. What does beforehand refer to? Before Christ was born. All those sins, David with Bathsheba, never got atoned for, never got punished. And yet David's up in heaven. How did that happen? Well, God looked ahead to the cross just in the same way that he looks back to the cross for you. It's the same thing. Really not much different at all. You've never seen Jesus either. In the, in the mind, it ends up being the same thing. By faith, trusting in the word of God. It's just that their promises weren't as full and complete as ours. We've got the New Testament. We've got the whole record of Christ and all that. But uh, Jesus uh, went so far as to say in John 8:56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Wow, what a statement. Jesus said, Abraham was thrilled to see me and my day. Well, they, they said, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. He said, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. That's what he says. So he says, Abraham came to God through me. That's what he's saying. And then the same thing in uh, John 12:41. This is what John writes. He said, Isaiah said this. It's a quote at that point. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Could that be Isaiah 6 in the year that King Uzziah died? I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Is he talking about Jesus? I think so. That's what John is saying. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and wrote about him. Moses wrote about me, said Jesus. So here's Moses, here's Abraham, and here's Isaiah, and they just stand as a symbol, I think, for Old Testament saints. They came to God the Father only through Christ. There's no other way. There's no other access for us. Now, Christ, our high priest, 
is the one through whom we approach God. The book of Hebrews teaches this. I mean, Hebrew quote after Hebrew quote. You just have to read the book of Hebrews. This is what it teaches. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. Let us then, or based on that, approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So on the basis of Christ and His finished work as mediator, we may approach the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, it teaches in Ephesians 2 as well. With boldness we can come. Hebrews 7, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Isn't that marvelous? Jesus is alive forever, interceding for us. Well, there's lots of us. How does He do that? Well, He's infinite. He has an infinite intercessory ministry. You're very needy. So am I. And so He's praying for you constantly, all the time praying for you praying and praying and not just for you but for all your brothers and sisters around the world who are in great danger why are they in great danger because they're alive in this world this world is a dangerous place father protect them by the power of your name that none of them may be lost jesus prays simon simon satan has demanded to sift you like wheat but i have prayed for you simon that your faith may not fail I have prayed for you, Simon, by name, that your faith may not fail. And it won't. It won't. How could it? Does Jesus ever ask for anything from his Father and not get it? What's his batting average in prayer? <laughs> think of it. I think he hits a thousand. Why? Because he always prays according to the will of the Father. It's impossible for him to pray any other way. That's why I believe this is pure speculation. But when Jesus from the cross said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Those folks are in heaven, the ones he was praying about. I think so. The Roman centurion, I believe, actually gives a glimpse of, of the effect of Jesus' prayer when he says, surely this was the Son of God. You remember? I just believe that Jesus doesn't throw out words. And so when he speaks, something happens. And so when he says, Father, forgive them, they are forgiven. Well, what good is it to have some of your sins forgiven? None. Will it really be any consolation to a Roman centurion that at least that sin was forgiven as he's burning in hell? I think not. Speculation. But I just believe so strongly in the intercessory prayer ministry of Christ. Somebody would ask me, how do you know you won't apostatize? How do you know you won't fall away from Christ? Because Jesus always lives to intercede for me. And I'm not going to lose my faith. He's going to sustain it until the day I die. And no temptation will come to me except what is common to man, but God is faithful and will not let me be tempted beyond what I can bear. Even when I fail, He will discipline me, He will spank me or whatever is needed, but He will not lose me. And so he intercedes for me. But in essence, right now, even today, a man decides to accept Christ. It's almost as if right then Christ is saying, Father, forgive this man because of what I did. That's right. On the basis of my blood, 
on what I did, the atoning work that I shed for him, he is forgiven, and he will be forgiven. That's right. And it also shows the need that we have for ongoing intercession. It's not a static thing. The moment you're justified by faith, that's wonderful, but you've got a long, dangerous journey to make until you get to heaven. And so you need this intercessory ministry. You need a filtering that God the, God the Son does and He protects you from temptations you can't handle. And He's keeping you safe and He's watching over you and He's protecting you from the evil one until you're safe at home. That's a wonderful thing. So I guess what I'm saying is you just have to have the sense of the intercessory ministry of Christ firmly in place before you begin your own intercessory ministry. There's a connection between the two. Ours is, in effect, I think, a small subset of the praying that Jesus does, which is comprehensive and perfect and effective. So why, that's why I say I don't want to be man-centered in my prayer. All right? Whether I pray or not, Jesus is praying all the time, but yet I'm commanded to pray, and great things happen when we do pray, and we get spiritually sick when we don't pray. And so there's many motivations, but Jesus' prayer is the foundation, isn't it? He's always praying. These other verses you can read for yourself. Now, what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Is that just a magic formula we attach at the end? In Jesus' name, amen, so that people know you're done. You say, in Jesus' name, and then everyone knows you're finished. It's time to eat. But no, I think it's more than that. Christ commands that we ask in his name. John 14, 13 and 14, he says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name. See that? So that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. I would think that when Jesus says something like that twice in two verses, you're going to sit up and take notice. This is important. We must pray in his name. We must pray in his name. Well, what does it mean? John 15:16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. There's a third time he says it. And then John 16, 23 and 24. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? So again, many times in those chapters, John 14, 15, 16, he, he, he says we must pray in his name. At the very end here, we get the sense that a fruitful prayer life leads to what? If, if we're really full in prayer and see a lot of answers to prayer, what does he say? Your joy will be complete. That's a happy life. You want to be a happy person, pray a lot. Pray for many things. And just the joy. Guess what God did? You know, there's a sense of excitement. Joy may be complete. Now, it's not this in Jesus' name, therefore, is not meant to be a re mere rote formula added at the end of our prayers. I think we must know that Jesus meant something more than that. Well, I think it means that we're coming, first of all, uh, by permission or by the authority of. You're coming in his name. Open up in the name of the king, this kind of thing. Not being facetious, but there's a sense of, of authority, a sense of, of honor. Our name is nothing. Coming in our name will get us nowhere. But if you come in Jesus' name, now that's a name that opens doors. That's a name that has authority and power. It is by Jesus' name, they said about the healing in, in Acts 3, that this beggar whom you see and know was made well. It is Jesus' name and the power that comes through him that has given this complete healing, as you can all see. There's no power in our name, but there's power in the name of Jesus. So we come... Uh, by permission and by authority. Grudem's definition number one, praying in Jesus' name is therefore prayer made on his authorization. 
Ephesians 3.12 says, In Him and through faith in Him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. In that verse I gave you earlier, Romans 5. Jesus is our access. He's our introduction. And we would have no right to be standing before God apart from Christ. No right at all. So in Jesus' name means by His authority, by His permission, by His power. But it also means more than that, I think. It means that we are praying in concert with Christ's character and in concert with His reputation and in concert with His purposes and plans. Those really should have been individual things, but I wrote them all in one line. But first, in Christ's character, we're coming and praying the way Jesus would, with His demeanor, the way He taught, with a submissiveness, as we mentioned, and a boldness, but a submissiveness as children of God, as befits children of God. We come in His character. But we come also concerned about Jesus' reputation. We pray for things in His name because we're concerned about the name of Christ. Is the reputation of Christ important in this world? Every bit as important, as I said earlier, than that the reputation of God is. It's in the name of Christ that we're saved. And so when we pray, we're praying that Christ's name would be honored, that people would think well of Christ. That's the motive. And that tends to start weeding things out of our prayer life, right? This is insignificant. This is inconsequential. This is not what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And then, thirdly, we're going to pray in Jesus' name means uh, according to His purposes and plans. How do you know what Jesus' purposes and plans are? What is He doing in the world? What is He doing in the world? He's saving the lost. Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prove stronger than it. I'm going to build my church. He's building a kingdom. He's saving the lost, rescuing people from the dominion of darkness, bringing them into the kingdom of light building them up, teaching them to obey everything that He has commanded us, discipling them right until they're complete and many other things besides. How do we know what Jesus is doing in the world? What's our source of or information? Sorry, source of inf information? The Bible. So as you saturate your mind with the Scripture, you will know what in Jesus' name means. What is He doing in the world? Read the Bible. He'll tell you. Yes? right the holy spirit is guiding us in this he's teaching us what it means to pray in jesus name all right with all that having been said that we're coming by his authority by his command into the presence of god we're coming according to his character and and concerned about his reputation and uh, also praying according to his revealed purposes and will should we add in jesus name at the end of the prayer well i, I think so why not doesn't mean that if you don't god won't hear it yes go ahead Right. That's right. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I just would not use it if it's formulaic for you, like abracadabra, you know, something like that. But instead, learn to think. Maybe spend the next week or two thinking about what I've shared here and going over these verses in John and say, clearly, it must mean more than that. And so that you, you start to realize the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. When Jesus said, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am is really a better name for me. You can call me Jesus of Nazareth if you'd like, but I am is my eternal name. And they went down flat. At the name of Jesus, they fell. 
That's a powerful name. The authority of Christ. All right, so if you think that way, then you can add in Jesus' name. All right, it's not meant to be a rote formula. Now, next question. Should we pray to Jesus? And should we pray to the Holy Spirit? It's a question. Most prayers recorded in the Bible are addressed to God the Father. To God the Father. But prayers to Jesus are appropriate. At least they were for Stephen when he was being stoned. He was dying and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And so it's acceptable to pray to Jesus, at least in that case. He's got uh, a prayer directly uh, related to Christ because he said, look, I see heaven open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand uh, of, of the throne of God, ready to receive me. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So it's acceptable to pray. Also, there's a conversation between the Lord Jesus and Ananias. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. You remember how Ananias, as a humble, quiet disciple, he's the one that is going to go baptize Saul of Tarsus. What a tough job. It's like, Lord, I've heard about this man and all the damage he's done to your church in Jerusalem. And now we've heard also our information has told us that he's come here to Damascus with letters and he's going to arrest us too. If I go there, he's going to arrest me. And then the Lord said, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Okay, you're not going to suffer, Ananias. He's the one who's going to suffer for the next however many years until I finally take him home through execution. So he's the one that's going to suffer, but go. All right, well, then when Ananias recounts this, he says, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So who was Ananias talking to? Talking to Jesus. I mean, indeed, Saul of Tarsus talked to Jesus. Who are you, Lord, he asked. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. So there's a conversation with Jesus. So apparently, as we read between the lines, prayer to Jesus is acceptable. Um, also, it says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's a prayer to Jesus, isn't it? That he should come soon. So come, Lord Jesus. So many different examples. Jesus is our role as a merciful and faithful high priest implies we can go directly to him to intercede for us, who we already said. All right, so it's all right to pray to Jesus scripturally. How about prayer to the Holy Spirit? Well, I can tell you, I made a special study of this about a year ago, and there's not a single prayer anywhere in the Bible to the Holy Spirit, not one. There's not a single example. I never found a single one. Does that mean we shouldn't pray to the Holy Spirit? No. I'm just telling you what I found in my study, and Grudem found the same thing. I looked, and, and he, he says the same thing. I'm just telling you that this is an interesting fact about the Bible. And maybe you can search through the 66 books and try to find a different example. But I, I'm saying, and Grudem, we're both saying, I, there's not a single example we can find of any words ever spoken directly to the Holy Spirit. But we believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we would not find it inappropriate to speak to the Spirit. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be aghast if I were in a prayer meeting with you and you said, Holy Spirit, please come and fill us now. I wouldn't have a problem with that. I'm just telling you just information about the Bible. All right. I think, however, in general, um, in general, the normative pattern is to pray to God the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That tends to be the kind of right down the center approach that the Bible takes. Remember that Jesus said, he said, you know the way to the place where I'm going. He said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? He said, I am the way, 
and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What does Jesus want to do? He wants to bring you to the Father. Always He wants to bring you to the Father. He wants you to know the Father, that you would be reconciled to the Father, that you'd be in a right relationship with Him. And so I think Jesus would never feel slighted if you just prayed to the Father through Him all the time because that's His ministry is to bring you rightly to the Father. But I've already shown you that prayer to, to Jesus is acceptable as well. Any questions about that? Oh, I think so. I think any prayer offered by faith is, is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I really believe so. Prayer, praying to Him, uh, as, as I have done in fact, in fact I, I tend, to tell me, break me Oh, absolutely. Pray, I think so. And I, I just think that the Holy Spirit is in you as you're praying. Like John says in Revelation 1, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So the Spirit is just filling you and moving you. He's the Spirit of adoption that makes us cry out, Abba, Father. And so there's just such an empowering there. It's a beautiful point that you're making. And I think that also the Spirit takes our prayers and flies them, as it were, up to heaven and cleans them up on the way. You know, He just kind of purifies them and gets them right. And then, you know... So the image in the book of Revelation is of bowls of incense which are rising and ascending all the time. But I just think they need cleaning up. I've never prayed a pure prayer, I don't believe. Spirit testifies that I never have. I mean, all of my prayers are a little mixed. They're not purely in faith for the glory of God and for His kingdom. So He's taking those prayers because the Bible says in Romans 8, we don't know how to pray as we ought. We, we don't. Yes, go ahead. Oh, no, I never I said it was I not appropriate. No, no I did not I'm say that. To, I say it is appropriate, yeah, actually. I want the most effective prayer. I mean, I want that to be answered. Yeah. So maybe I should be praying to the Father. I, I just don't... Yeah, I don't, think, I don't think there's a problem there. I just don't. And believe me, I did not say it's not appropriate. I need to be very careful. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there's no biblical example of it. Uh, yes, go ahead. I was just going to say, to bring that point back, the, the idea of praying which person of the Godhead, mm-hmm. bring that back to one of your original points about being not man-centered, is that because of grace, we I think we're we're freed up from having to figure out how to get the exact right words and figure out okay which party in Godhead do I want this for this yeah, particular occasion? Exactly right. We're not needing to say abracadabra, not needing to say in Jesus' name, and if we don't, it doesn't count. And it's not like our prayer will be discounted if we pray to the Holy Spirit. I'm actually saying quite the opposite. I just believe Father, Son, and Spirit are equally delighted to see us praying. Um, the Spirit speaks to us in the book of Acts a number of times. The Spirit wouldn't let them go to uh, uh, Phrygia, I think it was, and it says, the Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And also the Spirit's communicating to us all the time. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, so there is a kind of a communication going on there. All I'm saying is that uh, I think we should be freed from a legalistic kind of straitjacket that if you don't do it this way, it's, he's not going to hear. Let's finish with this at Romans 8. Uh, it says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Are you weak in prayer? Yeah. Yes. We are weak in prayer. Jesus is mighty in prayer. 
But we are weak in prayer. The Holy Spirit is given to help us. Just like we're weak in witnessing and the Spirit empowers us to be witnesses too. We are weak in these things and the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. So who's the Spirit praying to? Same one that the Son is praying to, God the Father. So the Spirit's praying to the Father, the Son's praying to the Father, and so He hears. Let's close. Any other comment, Jack? Sure. Well, I just think the context tells us what blasphemy against the Spirit is. I think in the context, it's to see a clear miracle done by the incarnate Son of God, to feel the power of the Spirit around there so powerful that the people were almost beside themselves saying, could this be the Son of Man? I mean, could this be the Messiah? They're asking, Son of David. Could this be? There's just a sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And they say it's by Beelzebub that he drives out demons. I'm just saying that you have seen everything that God will do for sinners and you have concluded the exact opposite. There's nothing more can be done for you. Right, and I don't know that Ananias and Sapphira um, are in hell. I don't. Um, I just know they lied to the Holy Spirit and God killed them. Uh, to me, I feel that what's going on there... I mean, seriously, I, I believe that God sometimes takes Christians out of the world. And it's His testimony that basically I know where you're heading and it's nowhere good. It's just time to remove you. Because anything from this point forward is going to be straw on the day of judgment and you'll be ashamed and weeping and you'll do an incredible damage to my body. You're out. And He removes you. And just out of grace, really. So I don't know for sure that Anna and Sapphira are not in heaven. Because uh, it doesn't see that, say that they blaspheme the Spirit, just that they lied to Him. But uh, it's a serious enough thing to lose your life over a lie. Um, so that's a good point, Jack. Yeah, one more, and then we'll um, be done. Yeah, ultimately. But I, I guess, to me, I'm, I'm really trying to keep it in its context and say it must have something to do with the miracle that Jesus did. And I think that he did the miracle by the power of the Spirit. So I think what it means is to take the best and highest and strongest evidence there is for the deity of Christ and conclude that he's from the devil. I think, you know, what else is there to do? I mean, you've seen everything I can do. That's a good question. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've had tonight to study. And it's just flying by. It just really... I pray, Father, that you'd motivate us to pray. Lord, make me and all of us, make us men and women of prayer, Lord. I pray that we would seek you and pursue you the way that Jesus did when he prayed all night before he designated the 12 apostles. I pray that we would learn to love you in prayer and seek you and that you would pour out your spirit on us and that we would yearn for you more and that we'd yearn for your glory more than we do and that we'd yearn for your kingdom to come more than we do now. And that we would yearn, Lord, that your will would be done in our lives the way that the angels do it in heaven. Oh God, I pray that you would please make us uh, fiery in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this Friday evening, uh, the quarterly corporate prayer meeting. I pray it be well attended, Lord, at 7 o'clock. I pray that, God, you'd be there in a mighty way and that your spirit would be poured out on us as we continue in prayer and that you would be with us. Lord, make us a praying church in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.